This is an ABC podcast. It's the final week of Conversations for 2020, and we want to share with you some of our favourite guests from this year. 2020 has been anything but normal. For the first time ever, Sarah and I have invited guests into our homes for a change, where we've recorded the program from our attic, our spare room, or sometimes even the kitchen. You might have even heard our pets in the background. You might have heard my daughter complaining there's nothing to eat in this stupid house. And Sarah, I think I've heard the odd cat and herds of unwashed children running through your house. Is that right? (laughs) Odd cats and odd children. Yes, they've all been making an appearance from my place. It has been such a different year, Richard. I mean, you and I so love being able to be face-to-face across the table with our guests. Mm -hmm. So it's been a real difference having to, to speak to them via phone and Skype. But I guess we've both tried to embrace that. But I think for our best of, some of our favourite stories are those that were closest to home. And let's kick off this week of the best of 2020 with a conversation I had this year with Nadi Simpson. Nadi Simpson is a Uluroi songwriter, storyteller and performer. She's one half of the music duo, The Stiff Gins, who've been writing hair-raisingly beautiful songs together for decades. Nadi grew up in Sydney, but she spent most of her childhood in the freshwater plains of northwest New South Wales. It's a landscape that she thinks about all the time, a place where a system of freshwater rivers reached the Narran Lakes, a rich wetland of gums and plants and emus. Nadia has toured the world, she's played festivals, but she's always found herself drawn back to that river and to the impossibly ancient stories that are tied to it. Hello, Nadia. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Tell me about your mum and dad. Where did they meet? They met at a dance in Walgett in far northwest New South Wales. My father was born there and my mother was born in Coogee and she did a teaching degree uh, and then they sent her up to Walgett. And apparently the story in the family goes that my mum was there as a sort of chaperoning teacher for a school dance. And, and it was your mum that needed chaperoning. <laughs> That's how it ended up. Um, a, a man walked into the dance. I think probably back then that, you know, if something was going on in town, everyone went for a look. So apparently Dad walked in and went over to um, her and said, my name's Booba, want to dance. And the rest, they say, is history. Was he a handsome devil? She, she said to me um, not long ago, she was sort of really quiet and just looking at him in the corner of the room and then she said, he's not a bad-looking old stick, is he? So I think, you know, that that's still kindling, those little sparks are still going even now. Tell me about the part of town that your dad grew up in. Mm. Uh, dad was brought up on a place called Monkeela Bend, which is on a bend, the, a bend of the Namoy River, just outside of um, Walgut or bordering the town, uh, and they lived out on the river bank there, him and I think there was five or six other families uh, living side by side, out of town, you know, not inside town, uh, on the edges. Um, And when I hear them talk about Monkeela Bend, Dad's one of 11, they talk about it like it's this, you know, this golden era of uh, carting water from the rivers and um, catching bush tucker and going fishing and swimming in the river and all this sort of thing. And I, I... there's a real sense in our family that that was the time when all our aunties and uncles were the happiest. And it's really funny, actually, as being brought up in Sydney and hearing those things, I, I can see how much they love that. But I I think about those times and think, yeah, but you mob had nothing, you know. So I, I can see that in a different way. Um, but, you know, if they if it was the best time of their lives, then that's what it is. That they felt they had everything. That's right. They had everything in the sort of – we've got a photo of – um, the the place, the shack, really, that our pop made is just corrugated iron and, you know, hessian and tarp and tin and uh, that was all that they needed. And I, th- I think a lot about that and I think because there were people either side that could help um, our family with whatever they needed and in turn would be helped in that way. So really they did have everything because they had that sort of connection um, and relationship with the people closest to them. When you were visiting the area as a kid, did your grandmother talk to you much about the old culture, the old ways? I, I often think back about that and think, oh, I wish I would have asked her this or should have asked her that, you know. Um, 
but I didn't. But I think, you know, every time it came up, you know, I know that she said to um, our oldest auntie, you know, who was asking about language and culture, she said, oh, no, mate, we've got to leave that behind now. And, uh, you know, that's a sad thing to think about today. But I think for Bertha Sands, Bertha Simpson, to sort of get through that period, and she was actually born on a reserve, so they, they had no choice in where they could go. She was, you know, restricted and constricted her whole life, even to the point of living on the edge of, a, of town with her family. Uh, you know, she sort of had to do that to make sure that all those 11 kids could grow up and have a golden era. So um, she sort of, I think she sort of said, you know, leave that behind and let's get on with the daily grind, really, of surviving. Do you think it was just like drawing a line under some kind of catastrophe? Maybe. I mean, I think a lot about Nan and think, you know, if she sort of thought about that stuff, it would open like a little trapdoor into all the things that she didn't have or wasn't allowed to keep, that maybe, this is my reading, that it would be a flood of things that she wasn't able to do, that maybe those questions sort of represented, I think. You know, and and that mob, they were really resourceful, those older fellas. They could make something out of nothing, and I think that that's a part of that response to, you know, let's look at what, what we've got around us and let's do this now. What was her life like before she was sent to work on a cattle station? She, had, she was from a big family too. She had, um, I think there were about 15 kids born into Nen's family. And uh, she lived on Angledore Station. So around the turn of the century, Angledore was quite a big place. It's sort of, there's just scrub there now. You'd be lucky if there's five houses there. Um, but it was this sort of bustling town with um, pubs and stores and they lived in a mission out similar to how she did in her in her own adult life, separated from that bustle of town uh, on Angledore Mission Station. And um, there are photos of, you know, they round up all the Aboriginal kids and took a photo of them and there's records of Nan and her family there skull circumference being measured and you've seen these records yeah i've seen them down there in canberra and when you see that on a paper and you think of the person that you know it doesn't match and you think what are those people you know but there's so much that they're not understanding and engaging with and in a very odd way for me anyway as difficult as those things are to read that's still her so that's important to me and my story. So they're a bittersweet, these things. And, I, you know, the fact that there are records of that for my nan can sort of show you what kind of life she had when it was in uh, relation to non-Indigenous people where she was. I mean, another part of that yarn is that my grandfather was also, his family was also living on... Angledore Mission Station, and they grew up together and they ended up marrying and having 11 children. So somewhere in that narrative is a story of love and care and connection. But there's also these other things that sort of splinter that. Yeah, they're still being scrutinised as creatures who need to be measured, uh, like, in a kind of a cold and impersonal way. Totally, and, you know, she was a kid. How old was she when she went to work there? Uh, Well, she was born there. Um, she, and she was there till she was about 14 and then apprenticed out of um, Angledore and went to work on stations in the local area. So she was really only still a very young girl when she was sent out to work. And was that kind of like in, indentured service, this, this work on the stations? Yeah. So maybe 10 years ago, there was this thing in New South Wales about um, um, the stolen wages redress scheme and so people who worked in those early um, years on the cattle stations in New South Wales could, their families could see, put in to see if there's any record of payment that wasn't given to them. And the fact that that sort of 
existed meant there's lots of pools of money for people who worked without seeing anything apart from rations. And we put in for to see if there was anything, any information to do with them. We got back a, an envelope, got it at home of all this correspondence that she had a little bit later as a as a nineteen year old about writing to the Aborigine Protection Board saying I'm owed ten pounds, I haven't been paid from this place. And those letters, we put them beside that other sort of measuring ahead. Put that beside that, and then you can start to see the strength of this woman. You know, those things. That must have been great to see that letter that she'd written. Well, that's right. I mean, especially as from my point of view, you think, gee, all that mob, they, they had it so hard and they were downtrodden, they were sort of pushed around their whole lives. But here is this woman standing up to the government and her employer saying, I, I'm, I'm owed this and you fellas need to pay attention to this. And the beautiful thing is, Richard, I think, that my grandmother doing that is only one story of all these people we can imagine throughout New South Wales and Australia standing up in the face of um, you know this oppressive oppressiveness saying no I want you to listen to what I've got to say. Did she ever tell you what it was like living as a 14, 15 year old, 16 year old on that station? She'd never said anything to me. Some of my older cousins who lived much closer to her that we have uh, her daughter's family lived across the road and so our cousins there, Beth, would often sit with Nan and try and get these little yarns out of her. And I think sometimes things would slip out. Um, but she often, as and it's gone down into Dad's generation as well, they don't like talking about the, the hard times. It's sort of um, something that no matter how much you want to hear it, and there's a question into that I'm asking myself as to why, no matter how much you want to hear that, they don't go there. So I never heard anything like that from her. It was always enjoying the moment and enjoying each other. So what changed, Nadi? What enabled her to leave that life of servitude and go and live in the town? Well, I think this was reflective of what was going on in Australia. I mean, those little places a long way from anywhere, yet the movements that were happening in the town eventually filtered out there. So Charlie Perkins and the Freedom Rides came out to Walgett and it was this sort of social justice and a sensibility of, you know, human rights and the place of Indigenous people travelling along the highway out to Walgett. And a lot of um, Walgett people were also involved in the tent embassy and things like that. There were Aboriginal people getting politically active. And so when that, that wave of different ways of thinking started to happen and Aboriginal people started to be able to have a voice and organisations where we were talking about housing and health, that all sort of took a while, but it got out to the bush and eventually um, houses were made in town for Aboriginal people in Walgett and they got a house in town. I asked my dad about it not long ago and said, Dad, when you moved in town... Was that the first time you had running water? He said, yeah. I said, and a, and a bathroom? You had a toilet? He said, yeah. I said, what did you think? <laughs> he said, I thought it was heaven. <laughs> <laughs> so once your dad and your mum got married, mm. how did your mum get on being made a part of this incredibly big <laughs> family with all these characters in it and all this, this history that she probably could only guess at? There's beautiful stories of my grandmother and Auntie Jenny and Auntie Georgina, who were the older women in the family, taking mum out and going fishing and showing her places like this. Mum said one day um, the three of them went out fishing and Nan and Auntie Jenny said, you, you grab that thing out of the car and we'll go up here and you meet us. And they walked on ahead and mum grabbed some whatever it was out of the car and walked up to a tree where she'd seen that they passed. And here they were sitting on the ground with their tops off, pretending to sing in lingo, lingo and <laughs> making up a lingo song, with trying to shame her, but also trying to have fun with her. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of what it was like, you know, a little bit of, we'll see how you go, a little bit of, you're part of us. This is how we are. So I, I think of that as a really beautiful thing because those women were cheeky too. Mum always, uh, always talks about... Nan in particular, 
as being, I mean, she was an expert in people. She had so many kids, she needed to know how to deal with lots of different people. And mum always talks about feeling really closely part of that large extended family, I think. Despite what your grandmother said, culture was being passed on. What do you understand about that, how culture was being, the old ways were being passed on? Mm. We have um, lots of stories and families in the town of people who kept language and they would whisper it because the most important things are whispered and that sort of thing. So there's a real defiance in that quiet thing that people took care of away from the spotlight. Language was kept by families in Walgett so much so that um, Gamilaroi has three versions of dictionaries. He's taught at ANU as an undergraduate course and that's from a language that supposedly had died or been lost. Uh, and also, of course, the knowledge of place. So language, actually, we understand it as being in the ground as well. And people, even though their movements were restricted, knew and kept the stories of almost every bend in the river and every sort of different landscape and environment. As so would you do that when you go out fishing or something like that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, they'd all, you know... There was a name, and quite often a language name, for every place that we went to. And that's how uh, the land kept the people strong and the people kept that, that teaching close so that now, you know, I can sit here in the middle of Sydney and talk about it. So before electricity, before TV, people had to... Everyone had to be an entertainer of one kind or another. You know, everyone had to do that, you know, in Australia. You had to play the piano or sing or remember poetry or do something or other. Um, was that your family? Were you entertainers? Yes, painfully so. Dad's brothers, there's, a, there's three of his brothers who love music. He's the sort of main follower in our family, uh, Bill, Uncle Bill. He's known as the king and he is, he's an amazing entertainer. And there's this beautiful kind of thing where people can hear anything, any song, pick up an instrument and play it. And Uncle Bill, Uncle Jay, our youngest one, and Uncle Bo are those entertainers. They still do it today, you know. So they travel around outback New South Wales and play for Aboriginal organisations and do gigs. And I think it came from their time on Monkeela Ben. They talk about when old Poppy George used to play the harmonica and make them sing and tap dance and knock out a beat. So that was, you're right, that was when the joy of living um, happened. But a lot of entertainers and, you know, music was a very important part of my dad's life, also my mum's life. You know, her, her and her sisters learnt the piano and played flute and oboe and... So different types of musical learning, but both both sort of come out in different ways in, in uh, the three of us girls. Use of language was, was discouraged at the very least and often punished. Was there nonetheless language being used? Were people keepers of the flame around the area or of the old language? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, there's stories in our family of Annie, Nellie, Nan's sister, always keeping... Uluroi language and the, the Fields family have been really important in that in, in Walgett too, so much so, like, as I was saying, that we have dictionaries and courses and, you know, we are able to go and learn these things now. And imagine having the way that you communicate with everything, everyone, and the way you understand your world being taken, you know, you'd think there's no coming back from that. But these old, those old people, they knew how to, how to do those things. And language, the learning of language, to me, is one of the most powerful experiences because it's hard. It's, sometimes it's recognisable and other times it's really difficult, but it's still yours. Yeah. What does it feel like to speak it? Sometimes you feel that you're talking to the past Sometimes you're trying to work out what the word is for something and it's this beautiful kind of dance between time, I think, that it's steeped in a past. Uh, speaking it is ensuring a future and learning it at this time, you know, learning it and speaking right now is 
celebrating who you are. You know, we have that beautiful word. We call it burgu, and some people call it yurkupan in English. They call it the dreaming or dream time, and there's a new English way to talk about it, every when. Every when? Every when. And that's what language is. What does that mean, like timelessness? Yeah, I think for me it's a cycle of being. It's not a point in a journey or a linear understanding. It's it's sort of almost like a bubble bouncing off different things in a space. That's sort of what language is and how I try and train myself up to interact with time when I talk about culture. Do you feel like you're living on the threshold of somewhere else? Like, the, 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 so much of, I understand this, I don't, I don't have Aboriginal language, but I understand so much of, it, of language, and certainly in the art, it feels, it feels very close to a kind of, and this is going to sound weird, but some kind of otherworldliness, a kind of a metaphysical place. Some, I don't, you wouldn't call it heaven, you'd call it something else though. I think language for us is, it, it, it proves our, I don't want to say proves our difference. Sometimes I walk around here, I was born in Sydney, walk around Sydney and, you know, go to university and talk to people and whatever and I think, this doesn't make sense to me, you know. Something's not quite right. I see something a little bit differently and I think the way that language is constructed, the answers to that difference or the square peg round hole thing is in language and for me anyway. It's a kind of a proof of those two different ways being together. So we have this word in Gamilaroi language, Yuluroi language, Winningala, and it means to think, to listen, to know, to understand and to dream. All one word for that. So what happens when you have one word that means all those things? Connected to the fact that our seed of knowledge is in our ear. So straight away we're talking about different approaches to life, that to know you need to listen, to think and understand things, you've got to stop talking and listen. That's where your knowledge comes from. That's what I mean when sort of societies are set up a little bit differently and something's not right. It's because the language can give you a way to understand the difference and try and navigate those things. The classic ways that language can reflect a different idea of reality can be seen all over the place. You know, like the old, instead of saying, I'm sad in Ireland, people will say something like, I feel a sadness has come upon me. And that's yeah. a different thing. It's yes. a different idea. Yeah. And the beauty is finding a way that it translates into the way you live. And the fluidity between those two realities, I find, is really wonderful. That's why singing and writing and all that stuff I love, because... Both those things can complement each other in a way. In your novel, you describe the sky as being like a watercourse, a heavenly highway. I love that. I love that. That's how you see the sky. Are you thinking there of the sky of northwest New South Wales around your, around your country, around up there? Yeah. So our word for Milky Way is Warrumbul. And our, that's the same, the word that we give when the uh, water sp- spills out of the rivers and there's a flood on the land. So Warrumbul is the water overflow, the flood plain. Or it becomes like a mirror then. Yeah, and the sky and the stars are reflected on the land. So there is a coming together of what's happening in the lived experience and what is being lived up in above you. I mean, for us, when you pass away, you go up into the sky and you wait for the mob that are downstairs. So there's, there's no reality and not. There's just people waiting for you and living alongside you and above you all the time. You talk about, you write from the point of view of uh, ancestral beings in the sky. Tell me about old man laughing star that appears. Yeah, he's a real dude. Um, that uh, morning star we call Muradigindamala, Malar. And the story of how he got his name is he's an old man. And he's laughing at a woman up in the sky who's got a big bump. She's bent over for something. And he's looking at her laughing, and his laugh is that twinkle that we see. Cheeky old man, Muradig in the Malar. So um, 
just as we've got people that we live beside. That mob's still doing their thing up upstairs too. The twinkling is laughter. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. lovely. Are there any traditional songs left about this? Um, in Yuluroi country, we have one surviving old melody. We've got lots of stories people know about, you know, Orion's Belt is this and Mie Mie, the Seven Sisters, we have people who still know and share those stories. But in terms of song, we only have one traditional melody and that melody was sung when someone passed away. But interestingly, as the body transitions from ground into sky, the song gets you up there. So I guess it is a star song. It's a, it's a way to get you there. How has that been remembered, that melody? Is it recorded somewhere? Yeah, a linguist. Um, Janet Matthews went out to Lightning Ridge in the 70s and sat down with, I think there was two or three fluent speakers, old men at that time, and asked them, I've got the tapes, asked them, what, what is the word for this? And how would you say that? And if I was to say this, how would you describe it? And those tapes are a really beautiful thing too because it's a real coming together of those different ways of understanding um, your environment and people. And she recorded Fred Reese singing that song. Who's, who's Fred Reese? He, he's an old man from Lightning Ridge. who uh, He's born in Murawari country, just a bit to the west of um, Walgett, and could speak three languages and he ended up living in Lightning Ridge. And um, she went out to him in the 70s and asked him, and he remembered this song. And But he th- then said, all the songs had the same melody. It was the, the, the language and the words and the reason why you sang them that signified its difference. So in that one thing, we have a universe of song. ABC Radio. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Podcast, broadcast, online. So you were talking about some recordings of language and song recorded out at Lightning Ridge. Bloody hell, Nardi, it's the most nearest run thing, isn't it? I mean, what if those tapes didn't exist? Do you think about that? I mean, like that, that some, that it was considered so, so, so valueless for so long and, until someone just went, oh, I just better do this thing. Mm. I think of those things not in terms of if it wasn't for that person's interest, but I think if it wasn't for the relationship between those two people. I know that um, Janet Matthews and then others had the tape recorders. But, you know, over in Brewarrina, um, Jimmy Barker, um, Murawari man, strong culture man who was born on Brewarrina mission that a lot of our people are connected to that place, he recorded himself. So the knowledge, I think, and the people would have found a way to still keep that there. I see value in the relationship between those two people and the coming together of those two different ways of understanding words and place and story. So it wasn't, it wasn't saved by that woman. It was saved by that relationship. What does the night sky tell people in the area about collecting emu eggs around the Narran River? We've got the emu in the sky. And from, for a certain part of the year, you can make out this emu stretched out with the legs underneath. And then for about, well, maybe it's a few weeks, three or four weeks maybe, that emu or the space between the stars, the darkness between the stars changes slightly so that the emu that we see sort of contracts and sits up on a rounded body. And when we can see that in the sky, that's when people go out and looking for emu eggs. So the emus have laid. You've got this window of time when, that, when he's sitting on his nest in the darkness between the stars where it's okay to collect those eggs before, you know, the little baby starts forming. So we can grab them then at that time. I think we've just come, we've just come off it 
now as I speak. It's a sm- small little window, but we look up there and we know that now's time to go and get some emu eggs. We've just passed emu egg collecting time. We've just passed it. My auntie Sally's a great emu egg hunter. She gets all the skinny little nephews and nieces and grannies and takes them out with her into the bush, and I think she's had a lean year this year, but still she's got a few. No, the emus are pretty big. You have to be pretty serious trying to pinch an egg off one of them, I would have thought. You'd know all about it if the emu didn't like it, I would figure. You'd need a good little person to lure them away, and then another quicker one to jump in behind and grab grab a couple. <laughs> so your mum got pregnant with you, and she and your dad left Walcott and got married in Sydney. What do you know about the wedding? What was that like? It was at my auntie Christine's house. And what I've heard of that time, I think only mum and dad would really know. But I think that there was a lot of maybe trepidation about what was to come because these two people were from very different worlds. And almost, I think, dad's world was incomprehensible to you know, a white Australian family living and brought up in Coogee. I think most Australians wouldn't have seen an Aboriginal person in the 70s. And so I think that that time would have been difficult in a way because there were these two young people. And I don't know if if mum's family in particular knew what was going to be ahead for her. But, you know, all the dad's mob travelled down and they had a celebration um, yeah, but how did they go? I mean, given that they're from outback, 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 New South Wales, how did they find life in the scary big city? Well, I think Dad's brothers and sisters loved it. They loved coming down to the middle of town and having a, you know, shindig. I think what was to come was, I could imagine, maybe a difficult, sure, unstable time. I think that, you know, people weren't, people didn't know how this was going to work because they didn't know who these people were, on both sides, maybe. Yeah. And how did it work with your dad living in Sydney? I think um, dad's a real country boy. I was also thinking on the way over to, uh, I I remember one day I was asking dad to come in to walk up to Newtown with me. You know, I don't want to go. Just come up, I want to show you something. No, I don't want to go. So listen, we can get a bus. We'll just get on a bus, take us straight there. It'll be easy. No, no, started to get wild with me, see. I said, come on, we'll get on a bus, no hassles, and then we'll get there. Why don't you want to come? He said, when I get on a bus, everyone stares at me. And this was 20 years ago. And I was, I felt bad because I didn't even know that that was part of his life. I didn't realise Of course, looking back on it, I can understand that he would have experienced that stuff in Sydney all the time, and he must have to say that to me. So I think that that response has always stayed with me. If getting on a bus is difficult, imagine all the rest of it. And I think Dad is a real country boy, and I think Sydney. And he's also, he's a lot like Mum in that they're quiet souls. They're not like the brothers. They don't push themselves out, entertain people and try and be a conduit between people. Both of them are reserved sort of people. They let other people take the lead. And I think that that was a difficult combination for him to navigate down here. So how old were you when he decided to go back home? I think for most of my primary school life, Dad was in Walgut or Lightning Ridge or the Grau and he loves opals. And so if he was home for a short while, he'd be gone for a longer while and that was sort of my experience of my school school life, yeah. What was your school life like? I was pretty happy too. I was happy. I'm, I'm happy now. And I think maybe I spoke to my sisters, my two younger sisters, and we've all had a very different experience of... Um, dad being home and dad not being there. Um, and I never really felt that I struggled with everything. I wanted my dad there and I wanted our family to look sort of like what everybody else's family looked like. But, um, you know, just sort of got on with it, I guess. Yeah. And what kind of an education did you get in Sydney, Nadi? I had a, I had a charmed primary school and then I went over to... Mum's old school, 
where her her sisters went, and that was a very different experience. How so? We were quite diverse in the city, Sydney. You know, there was a lot of Portuguese families and uh, Aboriginal families and Greek families and um, Vietnamese families, and going out to the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Whole other city. It was mm. a bubble I was not used to. And really interestingly, most of the girls I was at school with were the daughters of the girls that mum had been at school with. So there was sort of this generational continuance. Right, so there was a private school, was it? Oh, a Catholic girls' school out there. Oh, very nice. And so did you have to wear the blazer and the we had the blazer. skirt and all yeah. that? Yep. Ribbons in your hair and all that? Yes, we yeah. had to measure out the length of our skirts to make sure that it wasn't too high and... I think um, it was very Anglo, very Anglo over there and sort of I got the impression that there wasn't much change or diversity that had happened out there and we were different because we came from the inner west, let alone being blackfellas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how, was, how prepared were you for the experience of uni after going to a nice Catholic school in the eastern suburbs, Nadi? <laughs> I should have enjoyed it, but I didn't. Why? Why, why didn't you enjoy it? I think I remember feeling very small. I remember not. I think that had a lot to do with the fact that I didn't know. I didn't know what I was good at. I'd gone into high school thinking I was okay at writing and creative things, and then sort of I felt a bit put in my place in high school. That competitive academic thing was not. I didn't take well to that. I like to, you know. Maybe be a bit more like mum and dad, a bit more of a slow burn, a quiet, quiet thing. Having an understanding of what learning was to me, I came out of high school sort of not really understanding a re- or having a relationship to knowledge, which would have really helped me in university. And I remember walking around Sydney University and feeling like a little ant looking up at a huge sandstone castle. And it was a, a very isolating time for me then. So did you drop out? Technically, I didn't. I was still enrolled. <laughs> and then I found out that they had a band comp. And so I used to go down and listen to that. Anyway, I eventually sort of, I petered out. And I looked across the road, I heard that there was a TAFE centre at the back of Sydney Uni. And why was that attractive? I think it was a music. I, I had sung in choirs and I really enjoyed it. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll... I'll give this a go. I, I had picked up instruments and, you know, I wasn't very good. People were doing eighth grade and I was sort of still honking away, but I really enjoyed that way of doing things, creative, being creative and practical with sounds uh, and voice. And I know that the TAFE was running a – it was Certificate two in Contemporary Music and one of the outcomes was, you know, singing an RSL. And I thought, I'm going to sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Singing an RSL. That's great. You have, I'm going to embarrass you now, you have the most glorious, heavenly singing voice. Did you have it then or did you get that by going to do this music course? That's very kind, thank you. When I went to TAFE, there were two girls in there who were amazing singers and so I shut up. For six months, I didn't open my mouth and I picked really? up the bass. Yeah, I started, thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'll have to, do, I'll have to play something and I played the bass I remember we had a gig at an RSL with our TAFE class and the amp was on stage and I plugged in, I went and stood in the sort of in the side, behind the side curtain plate <laughs> and let these other two singers go for it because I thought, I don't sound like that, I'll let them do that. So I didn't sing for a long time and I tried to play other instruments and gradually I sort of got over myself and, and joined in singing with them. How did you meet Kalina Briggs, who became your, your other half in the Stiff Gins? Yes. My darling best friend, Kalina. I remember our first day at the Eura Centre in Redfern. Oh, that's when you met her, on your first day? Yeah. Oh. And it was, we were in the foyer of the Eura Centre and they had all these chairs around the outside. And I looked around and I thought, where? I don't know anyone here. Where am I going to go? There was one chair next to a girl that I thought, she looks Okay. So I went down and sat next to her. I remember she had a, a little floral dress on and she had a big, thick book and glasses and she had a head in the book. And I sat down next to her and I sort of, you know, open body language and turning around to see if she'd say hello. And when I turned closer to her, she turned the other way and buried her head in the book. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, 
see how we go. We went, both went into the same classroom for the music course and then gradually. I mean, now we, we can't, you can't shut us up. Do you give her a hard time about that? Well, about... she's got her own version. Oh, she does? Yeah. Right. Well, she, she says that she was intimidated by me because I think I had a Green Day T-shirt on <laughs> and it was a bit too edgy for her. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered actually just being drawn to that space next to her. I didn't plan that, but I often think about that and that was a real turning point in my life. You know, sometimes you hear you know, people say that I wanted to be with that person because I knew if I was with that person, I, I, could, I could be... I could be king of the kids at doing whatever I'm doing now, but if I'm with that person, that person will help me get better at what I do. Is that what you were thinking or, or was it something else? I think I just sort of thought, where is a place that seems safe to me? And it was right next to her, you know. She didn't feel the same way, though. That's the she thing. didn't. I put her off, poor <laughs> I think. <laughs> so how did you two become friends then after that unpromising beginning? <laughs> well, we, there was only three girls in the class and we stuck together and then, you know, the boys would always jump on. There was a music room with bass and drums and they would always jump on it. We wanted to have a go on that stuff. They'd always get in there and just stay in there. And so the three of us were sat around looking at each other and thought, oh, well, we better do something. And so I think I learnt three chords on a guitar and then we just started singing together. And that was the origin of the Stiff Chins, was it? That's how Stiff Chins started, Because yeah. you couldn't get a go on the instruments. yeah. We, did, we actually did have one rock song. We did manage to write a song on, Kalina was on bass and Emma, the other girl who was um, in the group, was on drums and I was on electric guitar and we sang a song and had a swear word in it for our end of semester exam and I remember the ripples in the audience at TAFE. Oh, how terrible. They, you know, that, this, is, this is outrageous and we, that, our rock career ended then. So if those guys had gotten off the instruments and let you have a go, you know, I could be interviewing you as the bass player in a heavy metal band, <laughs> couldn't I? Could have gone anyway, Could have gone anyway. Right could have. But instead you make this kind of heavenly, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful music together, you and these, these two other women, Emma Donovan, you and, and Kalina. You mentioned a battle of the bands there? Yeah. yeah. How well, did that go when you went to that? Oh, it was great because I was still enrolled over there at um, UN, Sydney Uni, see, <laughs> when I was at TAFE. Right. So technically I was still enrolled. And we got up three, four songs. We said, "Come on, we're going to go and put it, put in for this." And Emma was underage; had to be sixteen. You had to be seventeen. She was sixteen. I was enrolled, but not attending. And um, we put our names down. And I remember, you know, there were three or four rounds. And in our, one of our first rounds, we just had these little folky songs. We were singing a couple of Titus covers, actually. And we walked in, and we'd see. Some fellow bringing in a huge amp and another fellow bringing in computer and, you know, we thought, oh, we're done for here. You know, look at this mob. They've got everything. And in the first round, this, this, this band set up, they had about four computers. <laughs> and then they put on hard hats and they sort of did the first the opening chords of their thing and we were just shaking our heads thinking, let's go. And then one bloke pulled out a sledgehammer and started smashing the computers. <laughs> And all those little letters, A, Z, W, X, Y, they were flying everywhere. And we realised, you know, they were there just to, you know, that maybe this wasn't just about the tonality and the construction (laughs) of your songs, that we just get up and sing and that was great. We ended up winning that. You won. Right. You mean, right, so you weren't beaten by the guys who smashed their computers together, that kind of punk sort of craft work sort of thing that was going on in the corner there. So you won. That was great. We won Sydney Uni Band Comp in 1999. And Adam Spencer was the MC, I remember, and we had heaps of, for the final, all this mob from Eora came, there was blackfellas everywhere. And one of our family friends who from Walgett had come with a few people, I'm embarrassed now saying this, <laughs> and he, he had lined up the judges who were all sitting at the table. And in deliberations, he went over to a judge and said, if those girls don't win, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it worked. <laughs> I really wish I was there that night. That sounded like it was a lot of fun, seriously. So over time, were you, were you, did you bring language into your songs over time? It was something that crept up on you over time to do that? Yeah, a lot, a lot later. We sort of, we did the kind of 
we realised we weren't a band and we were going to fit into the industry in a folk sense and doing a lot of folk festivals, which we really love, and sort of honing our our vocal craft, our harmonies and tell the story we're telling in that way. And then language came a lot later. I, I wonder if we sort of hit our peak in folk music construction. And I was about to peter off and then I did a, a summer school at Sydney University again, the Milleroy Summer School. And then that window, that beautiful French doors, can they be French doors they in Gamilaroi? Yes, yeah. Yes. The Gamilaroi <laughs> French doors opened up and this all this sort of knowledge and sound and cadence and all that stuff flooded in and into our work here. Yeah. And feeling? Yes. I think we we realised we could say one word and it would do something to the song but also to our performance that was sort of almost transformational. We could say Warrumble or um, we could say Bitterly Baby and that opened a whole lot of musical possibilities, storytelling possibilities and connection with audience that um, what we had been doing previously didn't. Tell me about the story behind that song, Bitterly. Oh, my great-grandmother, Florrie Whitten, she married Ernie Sands and they lived at Bangat Station. This is my grandmother's parents. She was born, my grandmother, great-granny Florrie, was born in 1898 at Bangat Station up near Angledore, near the Queensland border. And at that time... The wife of the manager of that station, Katie Langlow Parker, sat down with the Uluru people there and wrote down a lot of stories, a lot of language, a lot of customs, and she published them at that time. And in her writings was a song that the women sang over the babies. Um, what, newborn babies? Newborn babies, rubbed through smoke and with animal fat on their hands, Unangai bitterly, unangu bitterly, give to others. Don't own anything you can't afford to give away. Gilei, gileya, be kind. Always treat others with respect. And gumbin gilegu, rubbing the legs. No flood be too strong for you. And uh, Katie Langlow Parker's book was published in 1899. So my old great granny born in 1898. And so I think she was there at that time. She was born at that time. That song would have been sung over her. And they wrote it phonetically. Katie Langlow Parker wrote it out phonetically. And I thought, when I was searching for uh, language and old songs, found that text. And I, I, say, I sing it with Kalina and I sing it with my sisters too. And it's about that ceremony. It's about the teaching in that. Always be kind and be strong. But I'm singing in that language that my grandmother was not allowed to speak. And so there's that burugu, that dreaming, that everyone coming back around in on itself and having a conversation with that. I know you said you were researching, but do you feel like that, that song walked right up to you? Yeah. Yes. Part of how I love to move in the world is understanding what I come from. So I'm always looking for that stuff, but I don't always find what I think I'm looking for. I've had a few few instances where things have come to me and said, no, you've got to focus on this. But I think just having it being so real for me that our great-grandmother was born there proves that, you know, it made its way. It was meant to make its way through the ages to me. And when the baby's having smoke put on it, it's like eucalyptus smoke? Yeah, we have um, the women's plant up there, sandalwood, and so babies oh would be- Oh, my God, it's a baptism. I mean, it's, a, it's well, I, I know that's a Western term, but there you are. Sandalwood, you know, it's like, it's eerily like a um, church ceremony from, from Europe. Mm. Well, when I think about that, I think well, this is the first ceremony that happens over babies. So to me, I understand those things as the pillars of who we need to be. We need to be generous, kind, and strong. That's the rules for how we are successful Uluru people. That's how I think about it. When you last went up to your country in northwest New South Wales, what was the land like? Well, there had been a lot of rain and the grasses were hip high, which was beautiful. 
and they were this beautiful golden colour. I'll talk about Monkeela Ben being golden. It was this beautiful blonde golden grass and went out to Narran Lakes and saw a lot of bird life, you know. And I think that the land has a way of saying where it's at and what cycle it's in and how healthy it is. You've written some music about that that land. Mm. How do you try and capture landscape into that kind of music? It's really, I think of them like a love letter to that place. And if, if that's played or I sing it, I can be there. I can actually travel there in my mind's eye. And so that creative endeavour shrinks distance and enables me to get there. I think about what I see when I'm there and what I bring back. And I think about the trouble and the difficulties that the natural environment has in sort of trying to vie for survival in a very, really heavily cultivated time. So when, the, when there was no water in the rivers, my sister and I walked on that bare river bank and it was just so sorrowful. And I haven't been able to write that thing, how I felt about it, but I can write the memory of what it looked like. So there's levels and layers that you can get into, into how you relate to the health of the land. But when I think about that dry riverbed, that was really sad. Yeah. But now it's had water coursing through it. We've got the water back. We've got the, the birds are coming back. And this is a beautiful thing too. Such a devastating loss of a dry riverbed, yet it can, the water can come back. Warrumbul can sort of rise again and the land can sing in a different way. That there is a cycle. Uh, actually, how resilient is that place? No matter what we throw at it, it can still sing and that shows you how powerful landscape, no matter where you are, is. And you can see the stars in the water again. That's it. The stars are, I'm already getting to Mala. He's laughing at, laughing at people above and below you. And, you know, the emu is there and you're never alone. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much, Nadi. Thank you, Richard. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kulas, host of Days Like These, a brand new ABC podcast. Each week, we chat to one person about the biggest yarn of their life. These are human stories that range from heartbreaking to hilarious. You'll hear from everyday Australians who've conquered adversity, triumphed against the odds, and experienced all kinds of love, loss, and joy. Join us on Days Like These. New episodes are released each Wednesday. You can find them on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.